0: Hello and welcome to Energy Voice Out Loud, where we are leading the global energy conversation. I'm Ed Reed, Emerging Markets Editor. Delighted as always to be to be joined
1: uh, by Andrew Dykes and Ryan Duff.
0: How are you doing, chaps, today? Has uh, has the inclement weather passed from last week?
1: I believe so. I believe we're in the clear now. I believe it's moved on to Storm Kieran, a different storm of a different name, which seems to be battering the south. So are you all right, Ed, is the more important pressing question, I think.
0: I mean, to be honest, I've got quite damp trousers. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, I uh, it's... Uh... Unrelated to Storm. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes, I, I really set myself up for that one. Um... Perfect. Um, well, listen, I think we're gonna, just going to fire straight into it. But, you know, there's a kind of like a stormy weather segue for those who care to look for it. Um, Andy. Uh, offshore wind, obviously, uh, big, big, big hopes, uh, particularly in the US, there are some, you know, some, some, some really big plans. The Inflation Reduction Act, people will still not stop talking about it. But it feels like maybe some of the shine has come off it.
1: Yeah, so it's been uh, q3 earnings fortnight among the majors. Um, We had some obviously big deals uh, cut last week with Exxon buying pioneer, we've had Shell's results this morning, I think meeting expectations, but it's fair to say it's been a mixed bag amongst uh, some of the cohort. Uh, Equinor reported adjusted earnings of $8 billion for the quarter from total revenues of over 26. Again it beat analyst expectations despite some lower gas prices um, and gas is a bit more of a focus for Equinor as it's kind of stepped in to replace uh, Russian supplies to Europe as much as, as Norway can anyway. In a way. Uh, and renewables though uh, it had an adjusted loss of over hundred million dollars and then crucially uh, recognized a 300 million dollar impairment uh, based on its offshore wind projects on the US's northeast coast. That was followed days later by PP um, which also disappointed analysts. So that was profits of 3.3 billion, I think less than the 4 billion that was expected and down significantly from uh, the same quarter last year. Interim CEO, Murray uh pointed to strong operational delivery and strong cash delivery and a 3% year-on-year rise in oil and gas production and a 6% reduction in costs. He was very adamant about that on the call. He thought that his, the results were pretty decent in his view. However, it also booked a $540 million impairment on US wind. So these two stories are, as you may have guessed, linked. Uh, Equinor and BP are partnered together on uh, a series of projects offshore in New York, the Beacon and Empire Wind Schemes under a 50-50 partnership, 3.3 gigawatts of capacity. Uh, BP bought into the deal in 2021 for around $1.1 billion at the time. I went back and checked. It was 4.4 gigawatts in 2021. I don't know what happened to the other 1.1 gigawatts. I'd need <laughs> to track them down. But uh, at the moment, it's 3.3, I think. Um, you know, it, It's b- big plans. It comes with... A lot of uh, emphasis on redevelopment. So they're going to redevelop the Brooklyn Marine Terminal as a marshalling base for these projects. Um, But basically, the cost inflation that we're seeing across the wind sector is really, really biting them hard. A lot of it comes back to their kind of negotiations with the New York uh, Public Service Commission, which has rejected the requests from Equinor and BP and other developers for price increases to the tariffs that they the, uh, they will pay for the electricity from these projects. A few months ago, they'd kind of petitioned the uh, the commission to to raise the prices paid because they, they kind of realized that with uh, infla- inflation and supply chain costs, they were really coming up short on the amount of money that they needed to make their returns. Um, and I think there was some Reporting at the time suggested in some projects they were looking for basically a f- more than a fifty percent increase to the prices paid to kind of reach their expected cost of capital and everything else. Um, I think the Empire One tariffs were supposed to potentially rise from one hundred eighteen dollars per megawatt hour to about one hundred and fifty nine. Empire Wind Two was one hundred and seven to one hundred seventy seven, and Beacon was one hundred eighteen to about one hundred and ninety. So that, that was the kind of the amounts they're asking for. Steep, steep, steep. Mm. Unsurprisingly, rejected by by the commission. <laughs> Um, so both Equinor and BP are now uh, assessing the implications for the the projects. Um, BP's CFO, Kate Thompson, said that, uh, you know, they're, they'll be working with Equinor and they'll be considering kind of what this means, but basically that they need to see the projects continue to meet a 6 to 8% unlevered return, which is what they want from offshore wind. And ultimately, if they can't make that percentage, um, you know, I think the, uh, the future of those projects is certainly in doubt which is what happened this week
0: with orsted right so i think orsted came out with some results and they was it they scrapped two of those big sort of offshore wind plans?
1: you took the words right out of my mouth yes so <laughs> hey <laughs> orsted then uh, yesterday they brought they did their q3s as well uh i think potentially even even worse result really um, they took impairments uh, as much as f- nearly 40 billion danish kroner i think i think about 5. Point uh, $6 billion was the estimation I saw. And yeah, announced that they would cancel sort of over two gigawatts of projects off New Jersey. So this is Ocean Wind 1 and 2. Um, their shares have slumped to the lowest level. This is yesterday's lowest level in six years. Um, it looks like they're down this morning about 25% pre announcement. As well, so I mean, I think a huge um, come down for them, and it's uh, a lot worse than they said in August. I think when we first kind of got this inkling that these these US wind projects might be in trouble, I think they said uh, about sixteen billion kroner of impairments. So potentially, you know, that that's, I don't think they've they've calculated the full extent of it, and it could be less. But you know, the worst case scenario is nearly three times worse than they feared in August, which is severe.
0: It feels like uh, there's a real kind of reassessment going on, doesn't there? It feels like a lot of these kind of companies got maybe a little bit overexcited about offshore wind, um, about, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act... Uh, I mean, I suppose it, it also happened maybe to an extent in other parts of the world, not just the US. But it feels like they 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 ran in too early, maybe not quite um, with, with with enough of an eye on on those sort of supply chain costs. And I, and I guess like maybe in the US, it's particularly important, right? Because it's it's all about local manufacturing, isn't it? That's how you get those kind of tax credits.
1: I think that's part of it. I also think you know to give them credit, this these were projects that were lined up in you know the late twenty teens, twenty twenty. I think obviously twenty. 20- Twenty one was when BP came in, I think still at that point, things were looking all right. We still, you know, we were running the CFD round for Hornsey and things in the UK at the time. You know, I, I think this is something that has affected the whole market and it, it's just an inflationary thing. But obviously how fast that has made these things non-economic is, uh, is quite frightening in terms of, again, we're coming back to this, the amount of capacity that we need, the amount of capacity that people have promised, all the other things that hinge on those projects. Like you say, the, all this local content. That is, you know, supposedly waiting in the wings to come to meet these demands. Um, yeah, quite, quite frightening. Um, the uh, the governor of New Jersey, I think, late last night was saying they might sue about it. I don't know what um, what routes I mean, they have with, to do so with, at, at the risk of stereotyping Americans. <laughs>
0: uh, I mean, I do feel that you know our our friends across the ocean are very.
2: Uh, litigious uh, group Ryan what are your thoughts? Well I feel like um, when this episode goes out we're going to have with all due respect to our friends across the ocean and then just a long beep (laughs) and then it's going to be and Ryan what do you think? Um, I I think uh, I I don't know maybe, maybe being slightly pessimistic I mean there's been indications from industry for for pretty much all of this year tailing the last year as well you know prices are rising we've seen seen uh, projects stop over here as well like you said Ed it is a, a global issue this sort of inflation in the wind market we saw uh, Vattenfall's Norfolk project also go down uh, in the UK this year it, it does it, it, I guess the my question to you, Andrew, is: Is this just something that's gonna happen until until sort of government can step in and sort of do something a little bit more, or is this just going to be an industry problem? I
1: think there are some mitigations. So I think um, I know our is in discussions around the various kinds of investment tax credits and other any benefits of the the IRA that they can get. I think. And I think um, it was, it's probably worth saying that Mads Nipper, the, uh, the CEO of Orsted said, you know, they're extremely disappointed by having to do that, but that the, they remain committed to the U.S. renewables market. And they said they truly value the efforts the U.S. government is is putting in to support the buildup of the wind industry. I think it's still a case that this is a kind of short to medium term slump based on calculations that were made a few years ago versus expectations and realities now however now is the crucial time right the reason, the reason we have these things all these uh, incentives now is, is because we have made targets for 2030 2035 etc where you know the, the timelines are kind of your your eight to, to twelve years or whatever and, and these things need to start getting pushed through now uh, and if you just leave these big gaps in incapacity, the supply chain can't invest in the same way that it was maybe expecting, and so they have real serious knock-on effects. Um, I should say they're still going to progress on with the seven hundred megawatt Revolution Wind. Uh, they also announced an FID I think on that at the same time. So not all terrible news, um, but certainly not the kind of great heraldic energy transition we were promised, you know, will <laughs> be eighteen months ago. I would say it's it's you know terrible news for the wind sector, terrible news for the energy. Energy transition. I did have a touch of Schadenfreude in seeing that the cloud over the wind industry has spread across the Atlantic after our terrible CFD round. You know, it is an industry-wide <laughs> problem. It's not just that we're doing things wrong; it's that everyone yeah. has made some uh, some spreadsheet errors. Potentially,
0: we're,
2: we're all in this together.
0: <laughs> speaking to the, kind of the the people in the supply chain, there is obviously that always that kind of pressure about you know, can you cut costs further? And I, my my impression is speaking to those people who build you know the the foundations and the turbines and things that, that they're essentially saying no, no, we cannot cut. Costs any further, and um so I think there is there is a kind of like this kind of uh compression of problems, isn't it? And particularly in in the the under the US's IRA, I believe there's a like a there's a time limit to when you can get work going, and then you know kind of get those kind of tax credits. So there is a, a real kind of a squeeze on the side. But listen, I, I think that's probably a, a good point at which to, to to stop, and, and we'll we'll maybe uh, turn to another sector that's looking at a, a bit of a strange squeeze.
2: Have you been searching for the latest sustainability news, developments, insights, and analysis? Why not have it delivered straight to your inbox? Sense of Sustainability is the weekly newsletter for individuals and organizations committed to a more sustainable future. Each issue is designed to equip your business with the tools it needs to thrive in an inclusive, sustainable economy. Join the conversation and head to sgvoice.net slash sign up to
0: sign up for our newsletter. So this week, uh, as, as as Andy said, uh, BP uh, announced results. And I think obviously the, the kind of those offshore wind uh, problems really kind of got a lot of attention. But I think there's another part of the, the energy industry that's also looking at a Sort of a slightly more challenging outlook than we might have thought, you know. Particularly looking at last year, I'm talking about, of course, the LNG sector. So last year I- into Europe, obviously uh, everyone and their mums were looking for all the gas they could find. Um, there was the, uh, the 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 crisis stemming from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and suddenly those kind of questions around 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 pipeline supplies into Europe really kind of you know brought a massive question mark to the industry. There was a lot of enthusiasm to build new projects, and and obviously those projects that were already underway were like you know uh, encouraged to go faster. This year, obviously, as as Andy said, uh, we've seen some uh, we've seen that 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 kind of um, that euphoria uh, uh, for gas producers at least come kind of crashing down. I think looking at some of the results uh, this week, I've I've seen sort of European gas prices down by something like eighty percent. Uh, year on year which is a really startling uh, fall and obviously there's there's sort of a knock-on effect around the world so suddenly LNG production is still going to play a part it's still attractive but it's maybe not quite as attractive as it once was So this week on uh, BP's uh, conference call, uh, interim CEO, Murray Arkenkloss, was talking about some of these big plans that that BP's got going off uh, off, off Mauritania and Senegal. Obviously, one of the key areas for uh, supplying new gas into Europe. And um, so phase one of this GTA project was was sort of the first of, of, of three kind of big chunks. Um, he's is making progress, but it has been delayed. They've they've had some problems with uh, one of their contractors who was unable to go ahead with some of their pipelay work, and so now it's uh, it's sort of starting up uh, early next year. He hopes, but it was really the kind of the mood music around the other parts of those uh, of those of those um, those those projects off Mauritania and Senegal. There's 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 three others. There's uh, Yakataranga, which is going to be more sort of domestic gas, but with some uh, LNG options, and uh, another piece called uh, Baralla, and my impression from looking at at, at those, those, those comments from uh and, and and around from you know BP's kind of wider perspectives is that they're not driving those projects as fast as they once were. Um they are there's been there's been some rumor, I think Bloomberg reported that they're looking maybe it's selling out of Yakutaranga um to their to their partner there. And they're now saying that those three projects they don't expect to start uh, before 2030. I mean it obviously it does take a long time to get an LNG project moving uh but it, it to me it felt like a disappointment that they weren't going to try and get that GTA phase 2 uh, starting up before 2030. Uh, so their, 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 their junior partner there is is a company called Cosmos Energy, and, and their CEO was, was was recently talking to conference. And he was saying that, you know, that, that, that phase two of this GTA project, you know, that there would be cost savings, that the infrastructure was there, that it was essentially something that could just be expanded, sort of bolted on to the existing uh, facilities, rather than sort of, you know, reworked from the beginning. Cosmos is not saying uh, anything at the moment. They're, they 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 declined to shed light on their perspectives. They've got uh, their own results, I think, coming up early next week. So they said obviously it would be an inopportune time for them. But it did feel like maybe their their kind of the mood was 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 souring a bit, at least in terms of sort of taking on that sort of big upfront construction risk. Andy, you were you were on that call. Uh, what what
1: was your uh, perspective in terms of the, the the BP mood? Yeah, I mean it it was quite. A- pointed question uh, someone asked them quite directly about it I think having been at this um, Denver investors day that they'd done a few, about a month ago I think and had said yeah I'd n- I would noticed that you'd moved this project back and like could you kind of shed any light on it and you're right I mean there was there was kind of a thing about oh we've had a couple of delays on this first phase but really the second one we've got to really see and kind of see how things look with the production and it, it wasn't as you say a kind of trumpeting you know phase two is really important to us it, it'll be really easy mm-hmm. to do and you know we're absolutely g- we're going to steamroller as fast as we can. I do wonder whether there's a kind of that dash for LNG and dash for gas was like a temporary bubble. I mean, long term, there's still clearly huge demand. We've seen all these um, deals signed with Middle East for huge supply contracts, I think past 2050 as well, which is notable in itself. But I wonder whether those kind of peaks and troughs are maybe smoothing out a bit. I don't know if you're seeing that in, in kind of forward-looking stuff, Ed. Yeah, I, it's it's a really
0: interesting question, isn't it? That that kind of, that sort of sentiment in the industry, which I think is so important. And I think, you know, like in, was it, I think it was 2020, there were no new LNG projects sanctioned. Maybe you know, and very few in twenty twenty one. I mean, obviously, we were, it was sort of during the pandemic. Everyone was, like, oh, maybe we don't need hydrocarbons. That turned out to be not quite the case. But you know, there, there was a, there was a real nadir uh, <laughs> for the industry, wasn't there? And LNG, obviously, it feels like LNG kind of moves the fastest, right? Because they're these enormous kind of multi billion dollar projects. Uh, so GTA Phase 1, I think it's something like nine years from, uh, you know, so it's it's slow moving, it's big bucks. You've got to take a really sort of a long-term in, in investment view on those plans. My impression on BP, and I'm not sure if this is right, <coughs> excuse me. My impression on BP is that maybe they're trying to move away from that kind of construction side and more into the trading side. I mean, I think it was quite interesting. They were talking about how nimble their portfolio approach was, that they are maybe willing to um, commit to buying LNG from projects that have, you know, planned or starting up or whatever, rather than, and they would prefer that maybe to, to kind of building their own. So, they um, they've they, they contracted all of uh, coral FLNG which is off uh, Mozambique and they are also uh, taking all of the contracted LNG from GTA phase one in addition to to various other projects so I wonder if it's maybe a move away from sort of big challenging projects into maybe the more sort of trading side of things Ryan, what are your thoughts are you, do you have any perspectives on um on, on that sort of gas industry side and and that and that there's kind of moods in that
2: yeah i mean i think it's, it's quite interesting uh what you were saying there about as uh, yeah maybe not t- taking on these big construction projects because I, I guess i would the, the two the two super majors in the uk that we we often see as sort of rivals shell and bp bp has been seen more as sort of leading the charge on a on renewables, whereas Shell's maybe been criticised recently for scaling back a little bit. So I guess I guess that it, it makes sense in a certain uh, to a certain extent that they'd want to keep some of that spending that they could be putting into these big construction projects and keep it for their renewables portfolio potentially. Uh, obviously, I'm not the the owner of a multi billion dollar uh, <laughs> hydrocarbon company, so m- maybe uh, take my analysis with a pinch of salt. But you know, it does it. I, I it does a uh, stand to question that if they're wanting to free up cash to sort of fund these renewables projects, maybe not in the US, as Andy pointed out, um, it might be might be the, the approach they're taking. I, I think to counterpoint that on the renewables side,
1: Ed, they, you know, uh, Murray class was really uh, pushing that, you know, this this US thing didn't cloud other bits of the renewables business. And he talked a lot about integration and that that was kind of the key to BP success there, was to basically mimic the gas chains that they'd already built with these uh green electron chains where they'd own the wind farms which would then supply power to re- like hydrogen projects refineries chargers all these other bits of the business and kind of you know the the profits would scale up at each point there so rather than just being the wind farm operator you had all these other bits of the value chain and and, and you talked a lot about kind of the comparisons there with what they've done with gas so i think it's interesting that they would <laughs> kind of abandon that uh Thing that they seem to consider to be a successful part of the business. However, I do wonder whether, you know, back to the inflation thing, whether the delays that we've seen in the, the, su- the supply chain for GTA, you know, are they having <laughs> casting a longer shadow, maybe even than we're, we're kind of giving them credit, it's not maybe a year thing, maybe they are going, you know, if this is these kind of rates are here to stay actually does the next stage even with the demand that we've talked about for LNG make sense mm. if we've already had delays on this but does it, it's not quite as easy as plugging in it's not quite as easy as just taking a look at the reservoir and sticking another bit in you know
0: I think yeah I think there's there's certainly kind of a question there around sort of timing in the market isn't there and I think um there's been some some discussion recently about all these kind of you know new big LNG projects kind of coming online maybe we're looking at some sort of oversupply issue sort of maybe sort of 26 to 29. I mean, obviously, with these things, it's always kind of, you know, push something, see, see, see what else moves. But I mean, that's, that's the kind of discussion that people are having. And, and I guess maybe, if at that point, you're thinking, is that a great time to be starting up an LNG project? Maybe not. Maybe I'll just sort of hold fire for a couple of years and then start once the inflation's kind of cooled down a bit we don't know i mean it's it's is there is there there are so many uh, so many irons in the fire and i think obviously bp is also looking at how to balance its risk isn't it i mean i think so it's 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 been finding ways to especially in 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 africa looking at ways to uh so sort of selling down well sort of merging its angolan operations with uh, with NEs. Uh, selling out of Algeria I mean I think so I think there's there, there, is, there are a few kind of different factors that play there but a very interesting uh, topic to watch but for now I think we'll'll we'll, we'll, we'll take a pause and then come back uh, with something else that's uh, up in the air
1: or maybe not yes. <laughs> Someone has been to Segway school <laughs> In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organizations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society, and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape.
0: Now, Ryan, I, I, I led into that by saying uh, something that's up in the air, but, but maybe maybe it's not up in the air. Tell me about helicopters. Are they OK?
2: Uh, do you want the, the simple answer? The simple answer is probably not. <laughs> but yeah, so... We we've been reporting on this this week. Um, essentially, there's a shortage of uh, helicopter parts, uh, leaving some aircraft in an aircraft on ground or AOG condition. Um, essentially, you know, supply chain issues are meaning that when maintenance is needed, the the parts rep- uh, required just aren't there. This uh, this is being sort of most predominantly affected uh, by uh, on operators that that operate S ninety two helicopters, there is a shortage of uh, main gearboxes uh, for for that particular aircraft. Which you know that's quite quite a major thing because uh, you know that's that's a mainstay in offshore operations. It's it's kind of the workhorse of the North Sea and very various other re- regions with offshore hydrocarbon production. You know we've got. Um, it's it's dominant in in the region, uh, following the sort of the phase out of super pumas in the uh, the twenty tens, and according to sort of latest data, the S ninety two is responsible for carrying around about just over half of offshore uh, offshore passengers or visiting installations in the United Kingdom alone. So you know it's a serious serious problem and. Um, I think it's it's fair to say that you know it's it's not just the S ninety two that's being impacted by um, by supply chain constraints, but it is the one that was highlighted by the uh, the IOGP uh, who issued a letter to its um, to its members uh, recently. Something that we we were able to get our hands on and have a wee look through. It's it's worth noting that the IOGP, you know, I've, I've referred to the S ninety two specifically within uh, within the the North Sea. It's very much the the patch that we cover, but. The IOGP is an international organization and it's not known, you know, which geographies are being impacted the worst by it. Um, You know, I I think I might just want to to tell you exactly how seriously uh, the the member organization is taking this. I'm going to read directly from uh, the letter we saw. They described a serious and deteriorating supply chain situation in offshore helicopters that presents both significant safety and operational risks and which requires immediate management attention. So some strong words from the IOGP there. They highlighted uh, three helicopter operators in particular that's, uh, that's being affected by this two of which do have bases less than an hour's drive from uh, from where I am. Uh, that's CHC and Bristow. They obviously fly out of Aberdeen. And Bristow told us that I believe they have 11 S92 aircraft uh, in, in the region. So, you know, it shows just how how fundamental this particular airframe is to uh, to. Operations in in the North Sea. So
0: why have things gone so badly wrong? Is it because all those helicopter companies
2: kept on going bust? <laughs> <laughs> That's such a pointed way to say that. Uh, I don't. I don't necessarily think so. I think it is very much a supply chain rather than an operator. But um, essentially, this is this has been a long time coming. Is at least according to uh, Steve Robertson at Air uh, Air and Sea Analytics. He he mentioned um, that. A few months ago, I think it was about seven months ago, um, they published a report uh, titled "Sleepwalking into a Crisis" that was kind of kind of explained that this is an upcoming problem. Um, he also said that every aircraft manufacturers have having issues with availability, um, both with their sort of, sub suppliers, uh, and during sort of, COVID, that didn't help. But then I, I suppose the the argument there is, you know, well. Other other organ uh, other industries were also impacted in sort of supply when it came to COVID. You know, factories were shut and, and the like, but they've been able to bounce back. You know, so I don't know. I don't know necessarily what what's making helicopters take a bit longer to recover from COVID. Maybe. I,
1: I think my understanding is it's very much a Lockheed Martin. Problem right, in in supplying all the parts that are needed, I think they have shortages in their own lines, and then assembling these gearboxes and things, which are clearly one of the main things that need done, um, is is really uh, presenting a problem for people to maintain them properly. I think um, I I looked back and there was an article from from March, and their kind of head of commercial aviation was saying to a a big aviation conference that they you know usually have fleet availability in I think the mid 90s, and he said they're now in the high 80s. I think you reported something similar, Ryan. So basically, the aircraft that are um, usually flying and usually very available are now just all kind of hitting this maintenance point and can't get the parts and this backlog grows. At the same time, I think we have seen a pickup in demand for, for the aviation sector, which was really hard hit by COVID and everything else. And I think those two things together have really kind of created this a bit of a storm. Um, I think there was a good quote where he was saying, you know, he was very, very confident in the future of the airframe. And he said, the only, the only thing like best to replace an S92 is another S92, which doesn't really help this particular <laughs> problem that we have. <laughs> so yeah. they have a two to three year lead time. So, you know, I think I'm hopeful they're going to be able to supply more into the market. But, you know, in the meantime, this, this backlog presumably will just grow. And we, as, uh, as the IOGP letter says, it's kind of some serious implications for, for people getting around offshore. I think oil and gas is the main use for these helicopters, overwhelmingly. Mm-hmm. And military, I suppose. I mean,
0: I I I suppose in addition to that, I mean, it it sounds obviously inconvenient if their helicopters are the you know there are challenges around sort of maintenance and, and sort of flying. But I guess also there's kind of like a there's also a safety aspect, isn't there? Right, if if you need a helicopter in an emergency and there aren't helicopters, then that is more than just an inconvenience.
2: Oh yeah, of course. Um you know the S92 is used uh, in search and res- rescue operations as well. You know, it's not just uh, ferrying sort of workers on and off platforms and yeah, it's 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 got, you know, a wider scope of use than just just what I've highlighted here, but I think, I think it's interesting actually that uh, that That uh, line that you mentioned there, Andrew, about um, the only thing to replace an S92 is an S92 because uh, IOGP found that uh, what it described as robbery or cannibalization action. So essentially the act of taking working parts from one helicopter and putting it into another to make sure that it is uh, available to fly, essentially has went up uh, between 50 and 106% this year. So uh, maybe the only thing to replace s S92 is a faulty S92 with the right parts. <laughs> um, but <laughs> it's uh, not not the best practice obviously not uh, not something that IOGP was shouting about and going oh this is amazing yeah just keep you know as they said cannibalizing your uh, your helicopters not the best at all. Um and maintenance backlogs are, are also seriously up. So there's obviously a, a problem, but that uh, that point you touched on there Andrew about uh demand being up. Like yeah, following covid, uh, you know, the the need for uh offshore helicopters has increased. And you know, we've seen how that's impacting firms, you know, earlier this year, uh, offshore helicopter services UK was sort of viewing its um its number of staff um just after being bought over uh, by Ultimate Aviation, uh, and that seemed like when they bought uh, bought over the firm, it seemed like the end of a, a turbulent period (pun intended) um, where you know they'd been bought over by CHC, and uh, the UK's competition watchdog said, "Can't do that. You can't just buy your buy your competitors." So then they had to sell it off to eventually Ultimate Aviation. I spoke to the boss around about the time that deal happened, and they were like, "Yep." you know, everything's going well, good times ahead, and then they're having to review their staff pool, um, and it was you know, when we spoke to analysts at the time it was a case of, well you know, demand's up, but you know the contracts aren't reflecting you know, reflecting that we're still you know, we're, we're out of pocket, and in a, in a competitive market like in in the northeast of Scotland, it's quite difficult for these firms to pass on these increased costs to to their uh, customers. Um, at least that's what we heard at the time. So yeah, I mean, it it seems just like a real doom and gloom time for helicopters. If I'm entirely honest with you guys, I, th-
1: I think as we uh, as we said at the time of that very prolonged CHC deal, you know, who who would get into this industry? And I think it's just another head another headwind, pun intended, that they absolutely. Do not need
0: yeah and it it, it feels very much like uh, in fact i kind of I felt like all uh all, all, all through the sections so that they've been really sort of talking again about sort of supply chain issues haven't they i mean i think you know like the, the problems in the in, you know the inflation and and the sort of you know sort of the changing demand and and, and how you plan ahead uh, but listen i think that's probably a a, a good point to, to to stop at so thanks andy thanks ryan i've been ed reed thank you for listening
2: Outloud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.